Thank you for listening to the Who's Flying the Plane podcast. I'm Alex, and you'll hear me interviewing creative people about their influences, careers, and work. This week, I'm talking to Joe Wells, a comedian and writer whose first book dealt with his experiences with OCD. We talk about his upcoming book, which focuses on the positive aspects of being autistic, his own experiences with autism since he's had an autism diagnosis, and his comedy career so far. Maybe you could start by telling me what it was that made you think, I want to write, I want to be a comedian. Which of those came first? And how did you first get your start in those worlds? Um, well, I guess writing funny... Th- so when I was at school, I found it very hard to make friends and didn't fit in. Um, and uh, I think... So, but then I started writing like funny stories and little essays and things. And I would persuade the. This was just so. It's so weird how, in a way, how shy I was. How I had like very low self-esteem, but also I had the confidence to write like a, a humorous essay, and then persuade the teacher that I should be allowed to read out in front of the class at the end of the lesson. Um, See, so yeah, I'd write like little funny things, and the teachers would sometimes let me read them out in front of the class. And then I wrote a book when I was fifteen. I had very um, bad. Uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, as a teenager. So then I wrote, when that was starting to get better, I wrote a book about my experience of that and of, of um, cognitive behavioural therapy. So that was that was kind of my... I got quite lucky um, when I was a teenager because I got this kind of big break into writing where um, there weren't many books written by young people about mental health. So, um, yeah, so I was able to get this book published when I was... Um, uh, so it would have come out when I was, when I just turned 17, but I wrote it when I was 15, um, about experiences of the past kind of between eight and eight and 15. Um, so yeah, and that, that book I, I, you know, had, it wasn't a comedy book, but it had funny bits in it. And, um, one of the things which people liked about it was that it had a kind of lighthearted approach, had some kind of funny cartoons and stuff like that in it. Um, and then... I'd seen like a few comedians. I saw Ross Noble, who I just I was just blown away by Ross Noble, and I think I didn't know any. Um, you know, I think he is brilliant anyway. But I think when you kind of go into it without knowing anything about comedy, and you once you know a bit about comedy, you can see a little bit of the the joins of the improv stuff that he does. He's still incredible, and his genius is is how he can um, sew material into um, improvised bits. Um, but there's one of the first comedians I saw that, you know, this guy just making everything up on the spot as far as I was concerned. I just, just completely blew me away. And then I saw Mark Thomas, who's a very different um, kind of storytelling comedian. Um, and then I started to watch watch different um, different people. I was seeing, watching a lot of TV comedy and, and um, it was when the internet was kind of like dial-up internet. So there was a show called... So called the world stands up. Um, I remember seeing people, little clips of people like um, I think Josh Howie was on it, and Milton Jones, and people like that, um, who I guess were kind of at the time doing the kind of comedy club circuit. Um, and yeah, and then, and then so then I was deciding, you know, that that's what I'll do. I think I had that confidence of like that very lucky situation when I was, well, you know, when I was fifteen, I went, I'm going to write a book. And somehow that happened and the book got published. So I just had this huge kind of um, 
I guess this huge ego as a teenager where I was like, well, I'll just, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Um, and I went, oh, yeah, I'll be a, a comedian. And I thought I would just walk into just doing my own shows. Um, I didn't realise it would be a longer walk to um, uh, to be able to do it professionally. Yeah, the book you mentioned writing, which I had no idea you were only 15 when you wrote it, is called uh, Touch and Go Joe. And, um, yes. I think it's pretty amazing. I've, I'm learning as you're telling me that you were 15 when you wrote it. So that was a bit of a shock for me because it's, um, it's been very well received and things like that. So what's, um, what's something that you really appreciated hearing back from someone who's read it? Is there some sort of response to it that really made it all worthwhile? Or what were you sort of expecting to do with that book? Yeah, I think I, I, and I still occasionally do get kind of emails and things saying, um, you know, it made me realise that I wasn't the only one. Um, I think that's the kind of main thing which I hear from people and which I think is um which is nice to hear you know is is that it 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 made people feel not alone because I think when I was going through um uh having OCD and going through CBT um I thought um certainly before I had any diagnosis I didn't even know it was a thing you know and I think the mental health conversation is in a different place now to what it was you know I'm talking about the early noughties which isn't that long ago but it's it's easy to forget how different the mental health conversation was there you know no one talked about mental health that your understanding of mental health came from watching horror films where people heard voices in their head telling them to kill people and then they went and kill people <laughs> you know, that was what mental health was yeah um so the i and i knew that wasn't what i was experiencing i was experiencing um worries and things which I knew to some extent were normal kind of going into into a sort of um problematic place so I can't like the certainly before I had that diagnosis or had that kind of um education about um mental health from a therapist you know I had no idea of this being so I remember like going to the first therapy session and and part of me is thinking oh god like part of me is thinking like they think I'm crazy and they're gonna lock me up and that you know and I'm gonna be put in a straitjacket um and then another part of me is thinking I'm not really mentally ill because mental illness is when you is only about hearing voices and only what I've seen in in kind of um problematic horror films you know mm. so I'm going into that going they're gonna find out that I'm I'm kind of faking this whole thing because really what's happening is I'm just worrying about stuff and that's not mental illness so um so you know that that was a difficult part of it and, and, and certainly delayed me getting any help and allow things to get a lot worse because I didn't have that understanding of what it was like um so yeah that that's what I hear what I get from a lot of people the nice feedback I get is 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 you know it made me realize I wasn't alone and I think that's what I had to offer and I think even when I was a teenager I was quite aware of that that was that was what I had to kind of bring to the table. You know, I wasn't um, a mental health expert, but what I had was insight into, um, you know, what an intrusive thought feels like and um, what it's like showing up um, at the doctors and them kind of asking weird questions, what it's like trying to explain things to your parents and them not understanding at first. Um, I think that's great. And I think, with all of the change around the way we see mental health at the moment, it's, I found it quite easy to think that I 
I've got that covered now. I feel like I know if a friend says to me, oh, I'm depressed or anxious or something, I feel like, okay, well, I know a little bit about how to treat you or how to respect that or that kind of thing. But I realized just a few months ago, I, I met someone who has a form of OCD um, and it's nothing like what yours seems to be like. You mentioned intrusive thoughts there and I think that is um, something they they experience but there's nothing like OCD people think of you know turning things off and on a certain number of times and that kind of thing but this person is suffering with it purely mentally it's just to do with thoughts and you know th stuck thoughts and rep repetition in your mind and that kind of thing you know there's never too much to learn about that kind of thing and you, the fact that you're writing from lived experience instead of some sort of documentary talking about this is what OCD looks like I think that's really valuable. Yeah, I do, I do think, and this is this is also something which I, I did uh, kind of um, work part-time in a job which touched on this. Um, I think that you hear a lot of discussion around lived experience or lived expertise at the moment. And I think it's a, it, it, it's become a bit of a buzzword. And I think sometimes there's, um, or buzz phrase, um, there's a kind of misunderstanding about it where I think that people um feel that lived ex expertise is saying like the only experts in this thing are people who have lived through it and for me certainly around you know i would talk my kind of experiences around mental health and neurodivergence i think that for me lived expertise is about going there's a specific type of expertise that only this group has do you know what I mean like an, so a, an analogy which a friend of mine used which I think is really helpful is about if you want to understand a mountain then you could ask a geologist and they would explain how all the rocks um form or you could you could um ask different people and they could they could kind of you know meteorologists could explain why there's snow at the top because of the weather and that sort of thing but if you want to know what it's like to be at the top of the mountain look out and what that feels like then you'd have to ask someone who's has a kind of lived experience of the mountain um and I think that's um I think I feel like that's a helpful way to think about lived experience. You know, it's not to say it's the only expertise, but it's a specific type of expertise that no one else can have. You can't train for it. You can't re you can't um, you know, uh, even if you study, you can't kind of directly have that expertise. If that makes sense, would it be um, safe to assume that you learned about the problem that you were suffering with? through talking to people who'd never had it if you're talking to doctors and therapists would it be fair to assume that you learned well, about your own yeah, condition yeah from i think uh, well certainly the people that who i assume that's an assumption i made about those people so i don't know what um you know what their private experiences were but um how the clinicians i worked with i guess the the expertise they came into those um sessions with was clinical expertise uh, you know they certainly didn't bring their lived expertise in but um you know it's very possible that that um uh they may have had some lived expertise as well but that wasn't what they kind of brought to the session if that makes sense i watched a um one of your stand-up clips and it took a really different tone to some other ones because you go from being quite a politically focused comedian and then suddenly you were uh, talking about your recent as in sort of two years ago I think autism um, diagnosis um, and that's another thing that's obviously you're talking about neuro neurodivergence there and I thought it was really interesting that you it sort of once you've got that label applied to you 
it completely you know it made you really overanalyze things that had happened in your past and the, the piece of material was talking about an experience that you had and how had you known or you were trying to work out if had you known that you were autistic at the time then you might have framed that differently but I wanted to know do you find that that diagnosis changes how you approach things going forward are you sort of thinking about situations differently now has that changed how you approach your life very much or is it just a, a an answer to a question yeah no I think I think it has um cha- d- definitely has changed how I kind of approach things I think that I I think I'm more confident asking for things to to be I think that before you have the the before I had a diagnosis, I there were there were lots of things which I'd be rubbish at, and I didn't know why. So I think I always had that lingering sense of like, you know, don't ask for help. You should be able to do this, and and yeah. So I feel I feel like in a way it's given me a confidence to go. These are things that I'm good at, and I'm going to ask for help for the things I'm not good at. Um. Yeah, so that I think that's one way it's it's kind of changed my approach to things. Um, I think it's that's the diagnosis. I think it's that idea of uh, through speaking to other neurodivergent people, um, that idea that um, of just 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 trying to flip what what is normal and trying to think is this. Am I wrong here? Am I getting things wrong? Or is it just that there's an expectation on me to be a certain way and, and that I think has has informed how I ap- approach things? What was it that made you go and get the test to find out that you were autistic? Because it's quite late in life, or at least in my well, opinion, I, you know, I think of <laughs> it's children It's an being interesting diagnosed. story because um, my mum gave me a lift in her car four years ago and as I was getting out of the car, uh, very casually, she said to me, oh, have I ever mentioned to you that um, that you're autistic? And uh, she hadn't mentioned that to me before. Uh, when I've been going through the CBT and therapy, it was suggested that I be put forward for a diagnosis. And they were, I've now kind of had access to the, uh, well, I had access before, but I've now looked at the um, notes from that time Um and, you know, and they're talking about um, the user term Asperger's syndrome at the time. Um, the two versions, so I don't have recollection of this. My mum swears this is what happens, is that they suggested being put forward for the diagnosis to me. And I said I didn't want the diagnosis. Um, and uh, I, d- I don't remember that, but but that doesn't surprise me. I think that, you know, again, it's like how the mental health conversation has changed, you know. When I look back at those notes, the description of autistic traits to me in those notes seems very, very um, negative, you know, and I think that, what we're talking about, almost 20 years ago now, um, the only model, I mean, there were progressive conversations happening, but they weren't reaching um, kind of mainstream therapies but the only kind of model which was known about of what it is to be autistic was a kind of deficit model you know that there's something wrong with you um 
so I think that's why I would have resisted it. Um, so yeah, when I when I kind of found that out, I then saw uh, the formal diagnosis as an adult. Um, so I would have been twenty nine. Was it the year that I did? Yeah, I would have been twenty nine. I think when I had the the formal diagnosis. Um, which yeah, which I saw saw as an, as an adult. But 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 as I should, my mum was also running. The, the weird story is my mum ran this support group for parents of autistic children and I kind of knew about it but I just never put the two together <laughs> um so she was kind of doing stuff and going to sessions to learning how to support an autistic child but without the formal diagnosis so yeah it, it was it was a it was a weird thing to discover um and to kind of think oh yeah it was something which was kind of referred to euphemistically um when I was growing up as well, but I just never really thought about what it meant when that was being referred to. Do you think your mum didn't um, didn't want to label you with that because she had the deficit theory as well, that that would be something like a bit of a burden to you? I think my mum was in a way very progressive on this stuff for the time. So what, in the, one of the things I found out is that when she ran this group, they were doing a, a like a stand at like a, some kind of event. And um, what other people wanted to do was to, you know, have how, you know, how bad autism is. And she insisted on having, um, you know, she wanted every parent to write about the strengths of their child and what, what their child is good at. Um, and that be what, how autism is presented. Um, but I still think there was that, um, you know, that that kind of deficit model was all that was around then. You know, I think that I don't know. It's a, yeah, I, I uh, like it. It's a it's a strange thing, and I think that I would have been resistant to it as well. So I think that you know I probably wouldn't have wanted to have that label anyway. If you go over to the Who's Flying the Plane YouTube channel, you can watch the latest episodes of In the Studio, our video series talking to artists and creatives about their craft and showing the environments they work in. All of Series 1 is now available to watch, and the first episode of Series 2 is available now. And if you keep an eye out, they'll be uploaded every other Friday. So just go onto YouTube and search for Who's Flying the Plane, or you can follow the link in the description for this episode. So since you've had this diagnosis, you've become much more vocal about your own experience and you're also working currently on a book about 30 neurodivergent people. Uh, would you like to tell me a little bit about that book and uh, what we'd get from reading it? Yeah, so it's, it's a young adult book, but I, I think one of the things which I think is interesting is how a lot of the ideas around neurodiversity are still just reaching professionals really you know and I think it's it's a strange situation where you have this kind of um social movement of neurodivergent people um but it seems in in some ways it can feel quite disconnected when you see autism researchers and stuff like that saying stuff which to me as someone who's kind of quite um you know in the loop with a lot of the conversations around neurodiversity 
you know, often you will see someone whose job it is to, um, you know, work with autistic young people or whatever. And the way they would talk about autism is, to me, feels quite old fashioned. Um, so, yeah, so it is a young adult book, but I hope that other people that are older um, uh, adults will read it as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's a book about 30 different neurodivergent people who I think have done cool and interesting things. Um, and uh, some of them, some of them are um, uh, people who I inter- was able to interview and some people I've written about through um, research. Um, yeah, I think one of the things which I think was interesting was when I first pitched the book, I kind of said I want the angle of this to be that that the, that these people's what them being different is the thing that has made them brilliant and interesting, and uh, that would be the kind of um, angle you know that they're they've achieved cool things not in spite of being different but because they are different and. The more I read people's work and read about people and, and spoke to people, the more um, clear that angle became, you know, and I think... Um, so one of the people I interviewed was a guy called Warren Fried, who is the founder of, of Dyspraxia USA. And he talked about dyspraxia and determination and the, the idea that when a lot of kind of physical things, it will take him multiple attempts to master them you know in terms of working the washing machine uh, and, and stuff like that you know it might take him t- 10 20 times to, to work out how to work this washing machine um, but he will get there eventually and that that difference has instilled incredible determination in him and i think that's really evident in his life story because when he set up this organization uh, fairly early on he put on a meet and greet event uh, for dyspraxia people to come together and and, and meet each other invites the local press and no one shows up and there's a brilliant news article where um uh the the newspaper have interviewed him on this this day where no one showed up and the quote he gives to the newspaper is something like um we're going to do more and people are going to come in the future it's really kind of determined and 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 sounds kind of um uh from the outside, it kind of it almost looks slightly delusional, you know, like he thinks this that things that he hasn't lost any confidence from this event where no one's shown up, and but then he just worked, kept going and built this organisation, and then he does have meeting groups where people do come and it builds and builds and builds, um. So, so yeah, it, um, it was really clear to me that that kind of um, that that association of determination and dyspraxia, um comes through really clearly in Warren's life. And there were multiple people who, who I've written about where I think that, um, uh, you know, Greta Thunberg's like a really obvious example, you know, of someone who um, is very rigid in the way that they think. But actually, that's what makes her a great campaigner is that she's gone, well, the planet is dying if we don't do something about it. So we should all do something about it. Um, and that, to me, is a very autistic way of thinking. And that is what we need because if we don't have people who are rigidly going yeah we've got to save the environment or we're all going to die then um then we're in trouble so i think that yeah there's lots of lots of examples which came through when i was writing about people going you know you can see why you can yeah i really saw that that different having an unusual brain certainly having diversity in the way that our brains are in society is useful you know and if we try to um to get everyone to have the same type of brain, then we're going to lose out on some 
uh, very important people who think differently. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of, um, I hope that's the, the kind of message that comes through in the book, because that was what I, what I took away from, from reading about and, and talking to these people. Okay, Joe, uh, what would you like to offer up as your Who's Flying the Plane hidden gem? My first response when you asked me this uh, was because I'm a, I'm a, a massive hip-hop fan and uh, I'm on a kind of constant quest to convert people to hip-hop music. Um, so my first thought was um, to Pimp a Butterfly, the Kendrick Lamar album, which I think is an absolute masterpiece of just writing and of, of you know, structuring a thing I think it, it is the best thing ever made. Um, I don't know how much I've taken from that in my own work. <laughs> I think that the thing which I probably, in terms of comedy writing, which I always recommend for people, is kind of my go... You know, you have like a go-to present for people. Um, is a copy yeah. of Breakfast of Champions by Kurt Vonnegut. I think it's just such a um, great piece of comedy writing, such a clever book, such an unpretentious book as well. You know, he's not trying to show off and, and be highbrow. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a, a bit kind of a chapter or two in where he says, you know, I'm, I, I can't be bothered to write anything clever. I'm just going to draw a picture of an asshole. And then in the book, there's a pit, like just like an asterisk of someone's bumhole. Um, <laughs> so I, th- I think I think Breakfast of Champions is a really, if you're interested in comedy, comedy writing, I think Breakfast of Champions by Kurt Vonnegut, um, which maybe isn't a hidden gem because he is very popular, but um, not enough people know about... Not, I don't think enough people have read that book because not everyone has read that book. So finally, Joe, uh, please could you tell us how we keep up to date with uh, what you do, uh, where we can see you on tour soon, and also when your book is coming out. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm on various social medias. I'm Joe Wells Comic on most of them, apart from Instagram, where I'm Joe Wells Comedian. I think I was Joe Wells Comic, but I locked myself out of my Instagram account, so I had to start a new one. Um, <laughs> and uh, I've got a website, joewells.org.uk. My new book will be out May 19th, if everything goes to plan, 2022. Um, it's called Wired Differently, 30 Neurodivergent People Who You Should Know. Thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me, Joe. Thank you.